may the words that I speak now and the thoughts and the feelings that we all experience be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It seems strange having a church service and preaching a sermon with a marathon going on outside and all the noises of that. And some of you have had a marathon trip to get here and I'm very glad to see you. But think for a moment, they are running, is it 26 miles? And whatever that is in kilometres. And the children of Israel, in the story we heard from Numbers, were on a trip for 40 years. So not two hours, not seven hours, 40 years of wandering around the wilderness, a marathon journey if ever there was one. And what is very, very interesting is how they are so human. I've often wondered what the collective noun for a bunch of church people is And I often think it's a grumble. Christian people and Christian disciples are very, very good at grumbling. Just like the children of Israel in the desert. They're in slavery in Egypt. They're freed from slavery by Moses and brought out into freedom. And what do they do? They grumble. They don't like the situation they're in. They'd much prefer it where even though they were oppressed and beaten up and treated very badly, at least they knew what was going to happen day by day. So they grumbled. They were out in the wilderness, free and on their own, and they were being fed miraculously by God with water supplies being provided for them in the desert. Water that seemed to move. Wherever they went, they found water through miracles of God's providence, and wherever they went each day, they got a ration of heavenly food, manna, and what do they do? They grumble about the manna. They grumble in the reading we heard from Numbers 21, but actually, ten chapters earlier, they grumbled even more about the manna. And they're saying to themselves there, if only we had meat to eat, they said. We remembered the fish that we used to eat in Egypt and how good it was. And we used to eat it for nothing. It was free. And we remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Sounds like Italians talking about last night's meal. And all we get now is this manna. And the manna seems to take on the taste of whatever it's cooked in or cooked with. If it's cooked in oil, it tastes like it was a sort, obviously, of heavenly tofu. A filler food that took on the taste of everything it was with. And they grumble and they moan. And I suppose if you've been going for 40 years on the promise of coming to a land where you would be prosperous, which would flow with milk and honey and all the good things of life, and after 40 years you haven't got there yet, and you're still in pretty poor circumstances, still in the wilderness and the desert, 
I think I would be grumbling as well. And then we get this very, very strange story that we heard read in Numbers chapter 21. It's a story that most people try and forget is in the Bible. It's a story that people try and avoid. Because taken at its face value, it says some pretty funny things about God. Almost some pretty unbelievable things about God if you understand God as Jesus revealed God. The children of Israel grumble, so God intervenes to punish them and sends snakes with fatal venom to bite them and because they have grumbled, lots of them die. So the story seems to say. And then even worse, when they repent and say they're sorry for grumbling and they get Moses to intercede with God for them, God doesn't stop the snakes. He simply provides something which means that the snake bite will not be fatal any longer. That's a pretty fierce, a pretty dictatorial, a pretty ungracious and unloving God at first sight. And one of the problems that we have is that this story has obviously been thought on. It was a strange happening and people have reflected on it and people have tried to find meaning in it and have tried to understand what God can be doing in all these circumstances. And generation after generation has wrestled with it and added its own interpretation in. And if you read what other books in the Old Testament and what other Jewish writers in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament and even Jewish writers since have tried to do with this story, they have tried to explain away the difficult bits of it. And I know why they want to. But the story is full of symbolic meaning. If you think of the stories in picture language and think of the pictures as they appear in other parts of the Bible, things slowly start to take on some sense. When the children of Israel grumble and stop cooperating with God, then the whole of creation starts to go backwards. Just like in the story of Noah, when human beings who are created to help God look after the rest of the world, look after the animals and the people in it, when human beings stop doing that, the waters fall back on the earth and things go back to what they were at the beginning when there was darkness moving over the watery chaos. 
So now, when the children of Israel start to grumble and cease to cooperate with God, creation starts to go back. Creation starts to go into reverse. And the reason why human beings in those early stories of Genesis stopped cooperating with God is because rather than putting God at the centre of things, the centre of the universe, the centre of their experience, they had actually tried to make themselves as important as God. They had tried to make themselves into gods. They had started to put themselves at the centre of their experience, the centre of life, the centre of the universe. They had fallen for the ultimate temptation to make themselves into gods in their own world. And where in the picture language of Genesis did that temptation come from? It was the devil in the form of a snake. Do you see the picture language starting to work? The children of Israel, human beings, when they make themselves the centre of the universe, they are falling for the temptation, the slithery temptation of evil thoughts, the snake-like temptation to make yourself gods and to assume that you are the most important thing in the world and 40 years after they first gone into the wilderness they are still making themselves the centre of the universe. They don't like manna. They want God to be their servant. They want themselves to be the most important things in their life. And all those slithery, selfish thoughts, the serpentine thoughts the snake-like thoughts are back. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a reflection that Satan, of course, was an angel who turned towards evil, an angel who became snake-like. And the prophet Isaiah talks about winged evil serpents in the desert. And here, when the children of Israel have ceased to cooperate with God and are grumbling about what God is providing for them because it's not good enough for them, they deserve more than that because they are the most important things in the world, the snakes become visible again. Things start going backwards and they're heading for doom and destruction. And that's not something that hap just happened to them because 
the temptation, those slithery, snake-like thoughts to make ourselves into the centres of the universe are still part and parcel of every human being. And what the two Bible readers we heard are saying is, we must not ignore that fact. We must not try and pretend that that is not the case. And the way it is handled in the book of Numbers is that God says to Moses, make a pole and make a snake out of bronze and put it on the pole. Because they have to look and see and recognize the forces that are inside themselves. They have to acknowledge how tempted we always are to make ourselves the center of the universe. We have to look at that and we have to look at that and look at God recognizing that that is what we are like. And if we accept that that is what we are like and look at God accepting that that's what we're like, then God can transform the situation and transform us. Which is what the story in the book of Numbers is trying to say. There were problems, however, because later on in the Old Testament you find that Moses' serpent put on a pole. They had gone on making serpents and putting them on poles and at one point there was one of them in the temple. And rather than looking at the serpent on the pole and recognising the evil tendencies and temptations in themselves and recognising that fact and offering it to God, they had started to worship the bronze serpent on a pole as if it could do magic. As if looking at it would miraculously cure them. It's not looking at the serpent on the pole which cures them. It's looking at God and acknowledging what they are like which brings them healing and salvation. And so the king of Israel at that time destroys the serpent on a pole because what had been there to help them relate to God has become an idol. Something that is there to help them relate to God they've started to make into a God. So the temptation to make themselves God has now spread and they're now making things which ought to help them relate to God into substitutes for God. And religious people have done that all the time and we still do. In every tradition, Christians have killed other Christians for particular ways of picturing God 
particular words that you use to understand God, we have made idols out of thoughts and words and pictures and statues, things all of which could help us relate to God, we have turned into things that we worship for themselves as absolutes. Because ultimately, we're still putting ourselves at the centre of things. And in the reading that we heard from the Gospel, John's Gospel reflects on these things and reflects on the story that we heard from the book of Numbers about Moses taking and making visible human beings' tendency to make themselves the most important things in the universe. And John sees how that can also describe what happens to Jesus. Because when human beings encounter Jesus, they have a tendency, when they meet the love of God in human form in Jesus, they have a tendency to try and obliterate it, eliminate it, to put themselves as the most important thing in life rather than God shown in Jesus. And human beings kill Jesus. They execute him on a cross. And John's Gospel thinks, but actually, putting Jesus on a cross becomes the means by which human beings can be saved. Human beings think they're eliminating the love of God and making themselves the most important thing in the world, but if they acknowledge that that is what they've done, if they acknowledge that that is what they're like, if they acknowledge that that is the sort of thing they often try and do, and if they acknowledge it to themselves and acknowledge it to God, then God can bring life out of that, can bring hope out of that, can bring salvation out of that. And John's Gospel sees that when Jesus is put by human beings on a cross and raised up on a cross, put on a pole, that symbol of death becomes the means of life as God transforms it. And John's Gospel sees that the lifting up of Jesus on a cross is the same thing as God lifting up Jesus when he raises him from the dead and is the same as God lifting up Jesus when Jesus ascends to heaven. John sees, John's Gospel sees the lifting up on the cross and the lifting up in resurrection and the lifting up in ascension as three aspects of the same thing. And why does God do this? That takes you to the verse of the New Testament which 
is memorised and known more often than any other, taken out of context more than any other, because it is so profound. Why does God do it? Because God so loved the world that even though human beings turned their back on God and made themselves the most important thing in the world, God did not destroy them, but God so loved human beings and the world that they are in that he gave his only son. That God does not abandon a world which has gone wrong. God comes and identifies himself with a world that has gone wrong and absorbs it into himself. And in absorbing the evil of the world into himself, taking everything human beings can throw at him and still loving, that changes everything. That produces life and light and hope. All those words that that gospel reading go on to you goes on to use. So we have some difficult readings today because these things stretch our minds and our understandings to the limits and beyond. But the basic thing to hang on to is that no matter what we are like, God does not abandon us. God still loves us. And if we are able to acknowledge who we are, what we're like, and what goes on inside us, and offer that to God, then God can transform us. And the world, rather than being creation going into reverse, will start to go forward once again. Amen. Let us pray. O God, rich in mercy, you so loved the world that when we were dead in our sins, you sent your only Son for our deliverance. Lifted up from the earth, he is light and life. Exalted upon the cross, he is truth and salvation. Raise us up with Christ and make us rich in good works, that we may walk as children of light towards the feast of heaven. We ask this through Christ, our deliverance and hope, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, holy and mighty God, for ever and ever. Amen.